Welcome, maybe even welcome back. I am Damien Barr and you're listening to the latest edition of Damien Barr's Literary Salon. Now, on my podcast, I get to talk to some of the world's best writers about their latest, greatest works and find out a wee bit more about the story behind the story. So this is Tracy Thorne premiering her third book, which is another kind of memoir. This is about her growing up in suburbia, which to me, growing up in Scotland in a rough industrial village, seemed impossibly exotic. But as we discover, suburbia is not everything it seems to be. And you're going to read a wee bit for us. I am. I'm, I'm, I'm going to read um, a couple of passages from the book because obviously it's not even out yet, so, you know, no one... When is it out? It's not out till next February, so um, we're getting closer, but there's a little way to go yet. So I'll read a couple of bits, shall I? Please. Okay, I'll crack on. When I try to summon up the past when I want to remember what really happened instead of what I think happened, and what I really felt instead of what I'd like to think I felt, and what I really did instead of what I say I did, I look at my diaries. They never fail to shock me with all the things they say and all the things they don't. Going right back to the start, I try to picture myself on the day I first decided to keep a diary the 29th of December, 1975, when I was 13 years old. I must have been given it as a Christmas present, and although it was for the year 1976, its first few pages invited entries for the end of the previous year. So I began as the old year ended, just before it turned to face the new. I would have settled down with a pen, riffled through the year's worth of blank, empty pages before breaking it open at the very start. And then, 29th December 1975, went to St Albans with Debbie, got a belt, could not get a jumper or skirt. (laughs) That's it. That's all she wrote. No starting with a bang, no announcing herself to the world or to a future reader, no declaration of intent. Nothing along the lines of, Dear diary, draw closer and listen to what I have to say. Here I am. This is me. Let me tell you the story of my life. Not even the guileless enthusiasm of a 13-year-old self-introduction. Hello, I'm Tracy and this is my diary. Instead, I draw a circle and leave it empty, my eye caught by an absence. And it wasn't an aberration. I carried on in that style for years, making countless entries about not buying things, (laughs) not going to the disco, not going to school, a piano lesson being cancelled, the school coach not arriving. (laughs) It's a life described by what's missing and what fails to happen. My second ever entry is just as banal, 30th of December. Went to Welling with Liz, didn't get anything except a bag of Kentucky chips. (laughs) 1st of January, 1977. Went to Welling with Mum and Dad to get some boots, but couldn't get any. 8th of January. Liz and I went to Potter's Bar in the afternoon to try and get her ears pierced, but she couldn't. 19th of January, 1979. 
Deb and I went to St Albans, tried to get some black trousers, but couldn't find any nice ones. <laughs> 17th of March. Tried to go to the library, but it was shut. <laughs> was it me? Or was, it, was it my surroundings? Was it just that I was the dullest child in existence? Noticing nothing, experiencing nothing, thinking nothing? Or was it at least in part an embodiment of something in the air, something vague and undefined? Even when I write about it now, I realise that the time and place in which I grew up, 1970s suburbia, is easier to define by saying what it wasn't than what it was. Brookman's Park was a village, but not a village. Rural, but not rural. A stop on the line. A space in between two landscapes that are both more highly rated, the city and the countryside. A contingent, liminal border territory in between land. So that's the beginning of the book. That's how the book starts. Um, and I'm going to read you um, a section now that comes a bit later on, which is um, we've, we're in 1976, and um, there's some passages about me going to the disco. It was my summer of disco, and it began in May when I started going to the Brookmans Park Hotel where a disco took place every Saturday and Monday night. I would often go twice a week with a friend or with my cousin Marion. Punk was happening, but not yet for me and not here, so instead we danced to soul records. For Once in My Life by Stevie Wonder, Get Up Off of That Thing by James Brown, Get Dancing by Disco Tex and the Sexolettes, although the whole point of the night was the moment when the DJ slowed things down and the dance floor would empty, girls to one side, boys to another, and we'd wait, staring at the floor or resolutely over the shoulder of any boy who might seem to be approaching until one would mutter, want to dance, without ever making eye contact, and we'd head back out for a slow dance. Hands on his shoulders to keep him at arm's length if I wasn't sure, or clasped behind his neck if I was keener and his hands would be on the back of my waist or resting on my hips, or they'd slide down, and later I'd write WHT in my diary for wandering hand trouble. <laughs> 31st of May, went to disco, danced with this bloke who was about six foot five. The slow songs were always the same. If You Leave Me Now by Chicago, I'm Not In Love by 10CC, Without You by Nilsson, and my favorite, Misty Blue by Dorothy Moore. And I was only 13, but the boys were older, always older. 24th of July, Creep asked me to dance again, but I said no. Found out he's called Tim and is a policeman. Yikes! <laughs> I was 13 and he was a policeman. I keep thinking about what this means and what it says about the time and the place. I picture myself, and I look like one of those girls in the Top of the Pops audiences, grinning at the camera, caught in the too-close embrace of an over-familiar DJ. I had shoulder-length hair, parted in the center, and with a fringe pushed back in wings that flicked out to either side of my forehead. The next layer of hair fell to the side of my head like spaniel's ears. I wore an A-line, knee-length denim skirt with side pockets, 
and a wide three-buttoned waistband circled by a thin plastic belt. A peach-colored T-shirt with a white collar and on the front, a print of a 1920s-style bob-haired beauty like Daisy from The Great Gatsby. On my feet, a pair of platform denim sandals, rope-soled, each foot bearing an applique butterfly. I was slim but self-conscious. I was trying hard but felt plain. Did I look 13 or even 14? I suspect that to the men and boys I met, I just looked like a bird. Fair game, all the same. 31st of July, dance with boy I really fancied. Blonde hair, collarless shirt, really nice looking. Sometimes the boys would say, do you want to go outside? Which was code for a snog. I was slow dancing with Gary when he said this. We went outside to the car park where the air was immediately colder and there was a patch of green between the hotel and the road to the station. He was dressed in a wide collared shirt and tie looking like one of the lads in Gregory's Girl. And we snogged and snogged while I kept my elbows pinned to my side trying to stop him getting anywhere near my bra. 18th of September. Went to disco, it was really good. Got off with Gary again. Got home about 11.15. 19th September. Saw Gary in his car. It's a dark green Cortina with two yellow stripes down the side. I put the registration number in my diary too. <laughs> I was nothing if not a stickler for detail. But the detail that screams at me now, though it apparently was not worthy of comment at the time, is the fact that he must have been at least 17. I've always complained bitterly about how strict my parents were, and yet that summer they didn't seem to have any idea what I was up to. Did the boys at the disco notice how young I was, or was everyone playing with fire all the time? In every other aspect of my life, I was a child. Aside from the disco, my hobbies were walking the dog, playing badminton and piano lessons. I had a paper round. In September, my period started and I circled the day in black in my diary. 25th of September, went to the disco, saw Gary, but he didn't ask me to dance, sob. <laughs> the next day I turned 14. I think of myself, wandering off out into the dark with this older boy who I didn't know at all, with his tie and his car trying to look like a man. It seems weird and somehow worse than 13-year-olds getting off with other 13-year-olds behind the bike sheds. More curious than confident, I had boundaries, but no idea how to police them. I didn't know I was still a child and the boys didn't care either way. The atmosphere of the disco, all mirror ball and long cool screws and get on up, conferred upon us all a kind of faux adulthood. The bar served us drinks and the boys asked us out. In my diary, it was all a joke. Nothing was real. September the 7th was my first day back at school, a new school year, and my period started that morning, though I didn't say so. There's just the black circle when the rest of the diary is written in blue. I must have had to go and find a black pen. But all I wrote in blue was this. Back to school. Mrs. Myers is our new form teacher. She's really nice, but mad. 
had double science, saw spring and autumn, bed about nine. Bed, wearing the uncomfortable belt and sanitary towel arrangement that mum had given me. She didn't talk to me about periods, having described them to my sister Debbie a couple of years earlier, and presumably feeling that it was Debbie's responsibility, being two years older than me, to pass the information on to me. It would be a while before I found out about convenient stick-on Kotex pads, and even longer before I dared to go anywhere near a tampon. The first time I tried, with no help or instruction, it got stuck, and I spent an excruciating hour in the bathroom trying to remove it, fearing that I'd removed essential parts of my insides along with it. Mum never explained sex to me either. One day when I was off school sick, she gave me a book to read, full of information about puberty and chromosomes and intercourse, words no one ever used. She left it with me for the day, and I glanced at it, curious, puzzled, embarrassed. And later, she simply said, what did you make of it all? Pretty complicated, isn't it? <laughs> so we lived in an atmosphere where sex was invisible and ever-present. Girls were both ignorant and fair game. There were rules and no rules, and everything was a joke. The day after my period started, I watched Carry On Up the Khyber. <laughs> I think of the 1970s, and I think of children playing grown-up games. Me and Deb got followed home by two cheeky fellas, saw George and Mildred, bed at 10. <laughs> the emotions in my diary are stylized, infantile, and yet I was on the cusp of something I knew nothing about. And the year ended just as it began, with nothing happening. Or should I say, the next year started just the same. For here we are, heading into 1977, January the 1st. And what did I write in my diary? Went to Welling again, but couldn't get any boots. <laughs> Got boots now. Got boots now. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for that. The, bet that you, the, the two bets that you chose really kind of embody the duality at the heart of the book, which is that on the one hand, it's really banal mm -hmm. and kind of bouncing along and, you know, and sort of a bit Peter and Jane. And then, and, and then the other side of it is incredibly dark. And at points reading the book, I was actually really fearful. And I thought, how did anybody survive? Yes, I know. I mean, you know, and being a parent now myself, I, I read some of those diaries with horror, thinking, you know, it's just not the kind of stuff you'd want a 13-year-old to be doing. Were you, were you actively lying to your parents about what you were doing, or were, you, or were, you, were they just yeah, busy? Yeah, no, there was lots of lying going on. And, and, you know, lots of the subtext of the book is about sort of secrecy and lying and the way in which that very conventional, very conservative environment of suburbia you know, made that degree of secrecy inevitable. It was impossible to live a sort of honest, open life. So I think everyone was sort of duplicitous all the time. But then again, interestingly, I'm sort of lying to my diary as well. Yeah. You know, there's things that I don't say. So again, when I read the diaries, um, you know, and I know what happened. And, um, you know, I, I can remember what some things 
are alluding to, and yet they're never actually described. You know, there are events which left an imprint on my mind, but none at all on the page of my diary. So were that's you, quite interesting, I think. Were you consciously holding back at the time, or did you, did you lack the language to articulate what, what you were feeling? I probably did lack the language. I probably found it difficult to express things. Um, I was convinced my mum was reading my diary. Was so, she? Uh, yes, I think she probably was. And I think I had an ambivalent relationship even with that. You know, there was a sense in which sometimes I, I look back and feel I was kind of almost telling her some things and then withholding things and maybe even testing the water, you know, seeing, okay, what will happen if I write this in my diary? Will this kind of bounce back at yeah. me somehow? It's a way of talking to her. Yes, it is. And especially, as you say, when you don't have the language. Yeah. And in those days, you know, people didn't have the language. The generation gap was pretty big and yeah. parents didn't talk to their teenagers about things. So, for instance, my mum never explained to me that my periods were about to start, never described to me, you know, anything about the facts of life, you know, just handed me this book. Um, were you excited about your periods? Was it like, yay, I am a woman now? Um, or was it, was it total terror? I don't remember thinking. I don't remember total terror, no, because, I mean, luckily, I did have this older sister who had at Debbie. least, you know, primed me a bit. Um, and I think, I'd, you know, I'd picked up a little bit from Cathy and Claire... Um, anyone who's my age will remember Cathy and Claire, who wrote the problem page in Jackie magazine. Okay. And were basically our source of information about most things, given that our mothers told us nothing. Um, so, you know, I, I think I knew some things. I mean, I'm disappointed that I, I didn't write down more stuff in my diary, because you kind of think, what's the point of keeping a diary unless you're going to mm. express yourself in it? But there is a page that you talk about in the book, um, in your diary, which is blank. Yeah. Um, and you say really clearly, I'm not going to say what, what that blank page signifies, yeah. but you go to the trouble of telling the reader that there is a, there is a blank page and, yes. and you know what it means. Why do you do that? Well, bec because, you know, one of the other things about using a diary, I think, when you're writing a book is that it brings up all sorts of notions about being the writer, being the one who's in control of your story. Mm. You know, when you write a diary, you are becoming a sort of writer. You're, you're, you're deciding what you write down. Mm. And on that day, I decided not to put an entry. I decided... It, and I, I do point out, it was nothing absolutely dreadful. I'm not trying to imply that this was a you know, life-changing, mm. traumatic event. It was just a kind of horrible teenage thing. And I just thought, I'm not going to actually write it down. And... So part of me thinks, okay, there's a sort of withholding going on, but there's also an element of control involved in that. And that's always present when you're writing a memoir, even. Yeah. You know, you're sort of being honest, but at the end of the day, you're the one deciding what you're comfortable saying, and, you know, you decide what you leave out and what you focus on. You know, you're shining the, the lamp wherever you want to and illuminating what bits of your life you think are interesting and that, that you're comfortable sharing. So I think that, the, so the reason I mentioned the blank page was in order to talk about that and talk about the notion of writing and control and power and where it lies. Mm. How did you decide which bits of the diary to, to include and which bits to exclude? I mean, it was, it was quite tricky. There was, there was a point when I was going through them all and sort of thinking, oh, I'll just write down the good bits. And then I thought, well, no, do you know, actually the bad bits <laughs> are almost better. 
Um, you know, the, and, and I read them through so many times trying to work out, okay, what's the sort of, what are the recurring motifs? What are the themes that keep coming back? Not um, getting bells. And then the things not happening, I thought was gold when I suddenly noticed that. I thought, that's really good. <laughs> it's very funny. And, you know, it's a really good starting point because it does, it leads me into this, you know, thing that I want to talk about this time and this place. And, you know, how it, a lot of it is all about boredom and, and sort of things not happening and, you know, this desperate desire that I had to escape and get to somewhere where things would happen. Um, let's talk about Brookmans Park, because to me, growing up where I did in, like, coal mining village in Scotland, um, I thought suburbia, when I saw it on television, was completely exotic. Yes. I thought it was some, like some kind of paradise, like Logan's Run, the future, where you didn't have to die. Um, and, 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 and you really, really destroyed that image for me. <laughs> I, was, I was getting, I was suffocating uh, by, by the time, you know, I got to the end of the diaries. But, so, but to kind of describe it, you, you lived in a semi-detached house, the house yes. that you were born in. Yes which I found extraordinary. Yes, no, I was born in the front room of that house. Um, you know, my parents moved there in, um, let me think, the mid-1950s. So they'd both grown up in London, my mum in Kentish Town, um, my dad in Wood Green, and had, had been teenagers living through the war. So they'd experienced the Blitz, mm. and then had got married just after the war, and had lived in a flat in town for a while and then moved out to Barnet. And then, you know, the thing I, I didn't really appreciate until getting much older was that for them, you know, a house in suburbia with a little patch of garden represented, you know, a dream, obviously. It was aspirational, you know, for them, it felt like a step up a ladder. And inevitably, it represented you know, a, a kind of a, an ideal of safety as well, mm -hmm. given that they'd lived through the war. Um, so, you know, looking back, I can now see what was the appeal for them. And it was a great place to be a child, but then the, the drawback is being a, a teenager in suburbia. That's where it all starts to go wrong. Yeah, that's when, that's when the diary entries start to sour. Yeah, they do. You know, this, my diary only starts, as I say, when I was sort of 13-ish. So the first year or so is just jolly, cheerful stuff about having piano lessons and walking the dog. Um, and then it, it, you know, then it starts, you can sense this life starting, which begins with things like going to the disco and starting to snog boys. And then I started to get into music and um, almost sort of, there's kind of hilarious passages where I'm clearly trying to reinvent myself as some kind of hipster and I'm endlessly going to the library and getting out Sartre and, you know, coming home and locking myself in my bedroom and reading books and painting into the night <laughs> and listening to Patti Smith and, um, you know, these things were very at odds with the suburban surroundings. Yeah, I think I'm on, on the, almost on the same page you see. Went to Brent Cross, it was great. And then <laughs> Red Gatsby, loved it. Yes. Like that. It's like all these kind of enthusiasms all yeah. the time. And then you emailed me this week and, and wrote in the email, ha, ha, ha. And I was like, she hasn't changed at all. No. She's still that teenager. <laughs> well, I am in many ways. I mean, that's the other interesting thing. I say towards the end of the book, you know, I have suburban bones. Yeah. And there's, what does that mean? Well, I don't know bones? what it means, but it's just there's something about that person yeah. who's diaries I read there 
um, who I still recognize very much. And I went back to Britman's Park in the process of writing the book. Now, yeah. I hadn't been back. My parents, who are both dead now, had moved away quite a while ago anyway. So I hadn't been back in you know, 20 years maybe. And in my mind, it's hundreds of miles away. It's basically 20 minutes on the train. Um, so I thought, I'm going to go there, like some pilgrimage. Um, I actually made myself a picnic to have on the train. I think because in my mind, it was, it was such a journey. So far away. So, you know, just past um, New Barnet, I think I ate my sandwiches thinking, <laughs> we are actually nearly there. Um, but going back, I, you know, I, I, I walked down into the village and had such mixed emotions. You know, Did you recognise anybody? Or ev- no, no, not the no not people, people, but the, the place. place looked exactly the same. Nothing really? had changed at all. So that, you know, so it felt profoundly claustrophobic and I felt like I stuck out like a sore thumb and I felt incredibly at home. Yeah. So it was that weird. That was what I meant, I think, by the suburban bones. You know, there's something about it that I grew up there. It That formed me and... Mm. Um, you know, you never quite shake off, I suppose, where you grow up. The the duality of safety and danger really comes through in the book, and it strikes me how offhand everybody is about it, yet how also intensely serious they are, and how it's all your responsibility to stay safe. Very much so, and and very mixed messages I was given. I mean, as I say, during that summer, my parents didn't know at all what I was doing, and... You know, very often we did very stupidly risky things. There was lots of, um, you know, seven people piling into a car when the driver was drunk because he'd all been out and driving down country lanes. Lots of that kind of stuff going on. And yet, on the other hand, from an early age, like I suspect most girls growing up, I was imbued with this sense of all the things I mustn't do in order to avert danger and risk. You know, I mustn't walk home from the station after dark um, I mustn't go here, I mustn't go there. Um, the implication being, you know, you're, you're under threat and it's your responsibility to avoid this. Mm. And again, I, I, I did take that very much to heart, I think, as probably most girls do. Mm. Um, you know, things happen to all of us. We, you know, you'd go for a walk in the woods and get flashed by someone and there were all these stories, you mustn't walk along this path by the railway line because there's funny men there and... Mm. Things so like it's completely that. So, normalised. So, you know, there was this weird kind of double standard that, you know, we live in this incredibly safe place and yet it's very dangerous for you. You know, you yeah. mustn't do this stuff. And th- another duality is, uh, and this is for you as an artist, is, is that the great aspiration of suburbia, as you understood it, was to not make a noise, was to be silent was to conform completely to what yes. your neighbours wanted. And, and, you know, and you wanted to do that, but you also didn't want to do that. And you, know, you were going on neo, you know, anti-Nazi rallies, and then you, know, you joined the kind of quasi-fascistic Girl Scouts movement <laughs> at the same time. And you know, there, were, there, were, there were lots of these kind of contradictions in, in Tracy Teen. Yes. Well, I mean, partly out of sheer boredom. You know, right. there's partly Just that, the, to do. that teen boredom that you'll kind of do anything, yeah. you know, and hang out with anyone just because you're trying to make something happen. Um, but, you know, the, the, the great... For me, the big split came, I think, when I, I started to really properly get into music. And interestingly, that was the point at which I began to most fall out with my parents. And, you know, that always struck me as weird because I would look back and think, well, during that period, for instance, that I've just read, in some ways I was at more risk. But to them, it looked quite conventional. You know, I was dressing quite conventionally and I was just going to this disco in the village 
round the corner, what could possibly be happening? Yeah. Um, and then when I, a year or two later, started hanging out with people who were dressing a bit punky and in bands, and we were going up to London yes. a lot to go to gigs, um, that's when they became very kind of um, antagonistic towards it all, and we had a lot more rows. And it was almost that sense of them feeling me sort of getting out of their orbit, you know, moving away from all the things that they thought they'd created that would be this ideal life, and here I am rejecting it all. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, that's... And that's quite a common story, obviously, isn't it? You know, yeah. teenagers growing up in suburbia, and then, um, you know, the grand rebellion comes, and it's a kind of rift in your relationship with your parents often. But you talk at one point about the kind of performer that you are and feeling like, you know, you're a quiet performer or that maybe you haven't taken some risks and you attribute some of that, you think, maybe, to growing up in suburbia. You think, if I wasn't being told the whole time, shh, mm. might I be a, a different kind of artist? Well, I asked the question. I don't know at all. But definitely, that, you know, one of the cultural norms I grew up with was um, not showing off. Yeah, that was a really big deal, yeah. I think, in that time and place. You know, don't show off. Um, don't draw attention to yourself. Um, just fit in, for God's sake. Just yeah. conform. Yeah. You know, be normal, be average. Um, don't show us up. That kind of thing. Which, you know, again, I can see my parents' motivation, but as someone who's emerging and wanting to make music and be expressive, you know, it's not good advice, yeah. frankly. No. It's not good advice. And so, you know, from the world of music that I was falling in love with, I was getting entirely the opposite message, which is, do show off. Yeah. You know, do make a noise. Um, speak up for yourself. Be heard. All that kind of stuff. So, you know, given that the, the early message goes quite deep, yes. you know, then I, I had to try and sort of pick my way between those conflicting messages and come out the other end of it. I think you're still doing that on some level. I feel Absolutely. Like, yeah. I don't think those kind of things ever come to an end. You yeah. know, the, the, the complications in your life that are sort of set up, sometimes by your childhood or your teenagers or whatever, you know, they're, they're part of you and you carry on negotiating them. One of the other things that struck me about, about the difference in languages between the generations is, is the way that your parents talked about their mental health problems, um, which they yes. would never have described as mental health problems. No. Um, you know, and you write in your diary at one point, Mum went to the doctors to get some tranquilizers, yeah. you know, ha, 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 or, I, or yeah, something like that. I think like, I do know, say And that's just, you know, that's just brutal right there, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's... it's, it's and, it and is, yeah, it's yeah. Not, and that's, that's, and that's, but that's what you were taught. And actually, somehow, be going to the doctors, somehow showing off. Or... I think it was. I think you know. Again, when I, I talk about the fact that um, I suffered from anxiety a lot, and I realised as I got older that I'd shared that with my mum. Mm. And you know, she lived very much by the code of not not drawing attention to yourself and not saying anything. And yet, there obviously was a moment when she did try and reach out for help, and she did go to the doctor, and she must have told me about it as well. So yeah. there were little chinks in that armour. There were little moments when things were revealed. Um, but as was pretty common at that time, instead of it being suggested, as it is to women of my age, that we take up yoga or mindfulness or talk to people or do any of those quite helpful things, she was bunged on Valium. And, you know, that's what happened mm. to a lot of women at that time of that age. Um, and that then brought its own attendant problems. Yeah. So.
please join me in thanking Tracy Thorne. Thank you. So as well as premiering her new memoir that night, Tracy was also premiering a fantastic new hairstyle. Shallow? No. Very important symbolically as it was grey for the very first time. So you can find pictures of Tracy and our other guests from that night and all our past salons over on our Facebook page which is Facebook and you just look for Damien Barr's Literary Salon. (laughs) 